Welcome to Episode 3 of our Jazz Backstories Podcast. My name is Monk Rowe. If you have previously tuned in, you know that I have a dream gig, gathering interviews with America's finest jazz artists. In our first two episodes, we heard tales of childhood inspiration cited by our interviewees as the moment their career path was set in motion. Now, an aha moment is a fine thing to have early on. The next issue is how to build on it. Today's inspired jazz student will most likely come from a hip high school, having studied with a private teacher who has coached them for the competitive jazz conservatory audition. Jazz is now recognized as an important American art form, and rightly so. To seriously study and master it, we now have institutes of higher education where the tenets of the music have been codified and pedagogy created that will justify a bachelor's, master's, or Ph.D., in jazz studies. Louis Armstrong and his fellow innovators would be astounded by this phenomenon. It's worth noting that organized jazz education has existed for less than half of the music's 100-year-plus history. How did those inspired and aspiring young musicians from our first two episodes learn this craft before Berkeley, Juilliard, the Eastman School of Music, and the hundreds of other jazz schools. A fine place to start is with trumpeter Harry Sweets Edison, who entered the jazz life by joining the Count Basie Orchestra in 1937 at the age of 19. Sweets shared his learning process during our September 1995 interview. I've been fortunate, God has blessed me, because I have uh been chosen to do things, I guess, just because of my sound, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, I'm still trying, you know, I, I uh, what little success that I have, and I still have, I'm grateful, mm-hmm. you know, God has blessed me, as I said before, and uh, I've tried to carry myself in a well uh as I always say, in my era, we had a lot of respect for each other. Yeah. Musicians had so much respect for each other. And New York was such a beautiful place to be at that time because uh, it was so competitive. When I first went to New York, I uh, I couldn't get any sleep. I stayed up so long till I fell out in 7th Avenue one night and had to go to the hospital. I just stayed up. So much I, going on. I couldn't miss. Oh, I just <laughs> couldn't go to bed. You know, I had to. I lived on 130th and 7th Avenue. Art Tatum was playing on 131st Street. Don Redmond was playing across the street at 132nd Street. Billy Holiday was singing at 138th Street at a place called the Yeah Man Club. There was Small's Paradise on 135th Street. Everything was in Harlem. You know, you could walk. And I walked so much till I just passed out. I just couldn't miss anything. You know? <laughs> so uh, uh, everybody was, it was, you could see everybody that you wanted to see in the daytime on 7th Avenue. Mm-hmm. Louis Armstrong, Ellington, James P. Johnson, Willie the Lion was at the Rhythm Club. 
it was just, you know, it was it was amazing, and it held my. Uh, I just, I was just, I was in awe at all these people that I had seen on the stage in Columbus, Ohio, to dance Cab Calloway. Here I am walking down Seventh Avenue, you know. And uh, looking at these people, you know, and saying hello to them. And Count Basie introduced me to all these people. Uh-huh. He was uh, like a father. When I first joined the band, I was 19, and he just took a liking to me, and he introduced me to Ellington, uh, James P. Johnson, Art Tatum, uh, Louis Armstrong. Oh, my goodness. It was just absolutely a thrill. At the time you joined the Basie Band... How much of the music was written? We didn't have any music. That's that was my question. No, how how did that work? And how did you well, learn what to play when you first got in there? Well, uh, that's an interesting question because when I first joined the band, everybody in the Count Basie band had played with Benny Moulton's band, mm. so they all knew what they wanted wanted to play. They all had notes to different like. Um, one o'clock jump, uh, uh, swing in the blues, uh, out the window. It was a head arrangement, you know. They just the, the brass section would get together and they would uh, play uh, set a riff, you know, behind a melody. Bass would play on the piano. The saxophone would go to another room and they would set a riff. And when we all came back to the rehearsal hall, we'd all have an arrangement, you know. So. Uh, that went on with me for about a couple of years, and finally I told Basie, I said, I'm going to quit. Well, he said, why? You sound good. I said, well, uh, all these arrangements that you play every night, I can't find a note, you know. I can't find a note to uh, swing in the blues, playing it fast. I haven't had a chance. I really was uh, uh, disgusted. Discouraged, huh? Yes. Yeah. So he's said, I'd rather for you to take my notice. He said, well, if you find a note tonight and it sounds good, play the same damn note every night. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's what I did. You know, he, he, he encouraged me to, to sit there, and it was very difficult because uh, when they play a tune like Out the Window or, uh, or uh, of course, one o'clock jump wasn't too fast. You could find a note. But... Uh, Jumping at the woodside, hell, they plan, you know, and you they're trying to find a note to play. It's past, it's, you know, you're finished. They're finished before you can find a note. Mr. Edison found those notes and rode the Basie band bus for almost 20 years. You heard Sweets use the term "set a riff." The riff happened to be our jazz vocabulary word from episode one. The riffs created spontaneously by the Basie band members were copied, learned by ear, and memorized. Musicologists cite this as an example of oral culture, in this case, the opposite of reading notes on a printed page, created by someone else. If you'll bear with me, I would like all of you to take a moment and spell oral to yourselves. I'm guessing most of you spelled it. O-R-A-L, and that is indeed the spelling used in most jazz history books. I have a minor issue with this, and I submit that O-R-A-L describes speaking, 
Sweets Edison was not told what to play by the trumpet players on either side of him. The tradition was to hear it, as in A-U-R-A-L-L-Y, with your ears. Hear it, try it. If it works, and it's no one else's note, keep it. If not, start over. Sweets Edison used his ears to find a note in an ensemble setting where he could use the same damn note every night. Fellow trumpeter Clark Terry employed the time-proven A-U-R-A-L learning technique so he could play something different every night, a fundamental part of improvisation. Here Clark Terry speaks about the role of the ear, music theory, and the blues. you got to remember that the ears... Years before people who gave vent to their feelings, years before they knew anything about theory, harmony, composition, counterpoint, etc., they gave vent to their feelings. And they were indulging in, uh, for lack of a better title, they called it get off. This is long before the term improvisation was coined, or before it was in the dictionary pertaining to uh, playing music, you know. Uh, they used to call it get off. It simply meant that the first course you played the melody and Thereafter, you'd use the melody as a guy watch and simply superimpose the extemporaneous melody around this, this given melody. So that's what became get off. So you get off the melody. So even then, uh, the guys were, were giving vent to their feelings and expressing themselves, and uh, uh, they would use certain things that would help them to get to from point A to point B. First of all, they, uh, they, the one thing that we teach our students today, and I'm sure you do too, regardless of how much theory, harmony, counterpoint, conversation, they will, you know, get in their brain. They got to know when to use it. They got to listen to when to use it, know how to use it. You know, there's a zillion educated fools walking around the streets today, <laughs> heads loaded with something they don't know how to use it, mm. don't know where to use it, when to use it. Mm. So uh, this is a, 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 a lesson that we try very hard to, to get our students to understand. Now, back in those days, they didn't know anything, as we mentioned, about these technical terms, and uh, they had nobody around to teach them. But they were determined to give vent to their feelings and express themselves and get off. So what did they do? They played the blues as the main vehicle. They played the blues, and uh, they, they, they played a standard tune, they played a standard tune, and then superimposed melody around it. But on the blues, they figured out a good way to give vent to their feelings is if somebody had the ingenuity, even without knowledge, to figure out that here's the tonic, that's the one, then you go up with, uh, rhythm, uh, uh, the, with the scale, one, two, three, that's the third, they lower that half step, bah, that's the minor third, you go up, one, two, three, four, five, lower that half step, bah, so you got a tonic, a minor third, flat a fifth, and they didn't know then that it constituted a half dimension, they couldn't care less, you know, all they, all they knew, they called them the blue notes. Mm -hmm. and say, Man, you got your blue notes? Yeah, baby, I got them down. I'm working on F sharp now, but I'm going to hear that tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Clark Terry enjoyed a stellar career as a member of the Ellington, Basie, and Tonight Show bands. He became an international star, a pioneer in the jazz education field, and he never abandoned the primacy of the ear and mastering the art of jazz. It's time for our jazz vocabulary spotlight. And what could be more appropriate than the blue notes? 
Clark Terry vocalized those particular altered notes, the third and the fifth tones of our familiar eight-note scale. In solfege, we would have do, mi, so. Blue singers, in a tradition dating back over a hundred years, lowered those pitches to express emotion and enhance the musical storytelling. So instead of this, we got this. And of course, you have to sing those blue notes with an attitude. Let's suppose you had a lyric. Uh, oh, my baby left me, and now my nights are long. Oh, my baby left me, now my nights are long. Now, if we put those notes back where they started, you have to change the words because that ain't the blues. Oh, my baby left me, and uh, I'm so glad she's gone. So the blue notes were something the blues instrumentalists and the jazz instrumentalists could copy. They copied the way the singers were singing, and that set them off on a path to find the other color tones. Or as Clark Terry said, yeah, baby, tomorrow I'll have F sharp. Legend has it that W.C. Handy, already an established composer of concert music in the early 1900s, was waiting for the late train in a southern rail station. A lone singer with a guitar sharing the platform unwittingly provided Mr. Handy with this aha moment, playing and singing in a manner foreign but inspiring. It was the blue notes, and this chance encounter resulted in the handy composition The St. Louis Blues, soon to be heard emanating from pianos in parlors across America. Speaking of blue notes... Pizzarelli is a name known to most jazz fans, especially guitarists. John Pizzarelli Jr. has shaped a successful career as a vocalist, jazz guitarist, and radio host, and he had the good and sometimes stressful fortune to have Bucky Pizzarelli as his father, a man who literally played guitar with everyone. John could have taken the jazz conservatory path, but he was too busy already gigging. During our January 2000 interview, John described his on-the-gig lessons with his father, Bucky, where he was forced to rely on his ears and his patience. When I, for my first gig with my dad was eight weeks at the Pierre Hotel in 1980, the summer of 1980, July and August. And the first night, I knew about eight songs. You know, if I only knew what we, we had to play four hours. And I remember him saying, Mountain Greenery, and what? And he'd go, da-da, and he'd look at me, and he'd be pounding these melodies out. And wouldn't tell me anything. And maybe once in a while, he'd hit a G7, like, you didn't hear G7? Oh, and it was the longest wow. four we eight weeks. But I mean, I learned, started to learn songs. Uh -huh. And I, it was the best. I figured it out along the way that the way he learned was by watching Joe Mooney at Sandy's when he was 12. He'd go down on Sundays with his uncles and watch Joe Mooney rehearse at this club mm -hmm. in Patterson. And Joe Mooney was blind, and he had the accordion with Andy Fitzgerald 
on clarinet, Jack Hotop on guitar, and Gate Friga, and they'd be playing. And Joe would say, here's how it goes. And he'd go, da -da 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 -da, and this is what you play, oh. and this is what you play. And that's how he taught me. He'd go, zip, 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 and that's what you do. And then he'd say, let's fake this tune. Rehearsals, there was never written out music. And it's the best thing, and it was the hardest thing. Was it aggravating at the time? Oh, it was just hell. I mean, I used to, I was angry for the whole time, you uh -huh. know, and I'd say stupid things to my father on, you know, I was just like, all right already, you know, you know, I was just grinding my teeth, you know, yeah. and uh, I, st I sang too at that time. I got a nice review in the Times. They, Wilson, John Wilson came down and reviewed us and... Uh, but it was really hard. It's still hard. And I stay to him every once in a while. Could maybe we just, you could call the chords out? You know, if there's a chord you want to hear, could you just, you know, tell me C7? That would help. You know, and he, and he goes, ah, you know. <laughs> you sound like him. You know, well, you know, <laughs> it's so funny. It's stubborn as a mule, you know, and just drove me up the wall. But I, the thing that I'm appreciative of is the fact that you watch kids, you watch these kids today, <laughs> and they get that damn real book out, uh -huh. and they open the real book up, and they say, okay, body and soul, page six and eight, learn, and they're all sitting there with music stands, and it makes me want to, you know, puke. Yeah. It's the best word I can use, uh -huh. is that, it's like, get rid of the damn book. You should have these songs in your head. In a future episode, we'll discuss the real book and why it gives John Ajita. I happened to be in the audience to witness a wonderful sort of circle of life moment with the Pizzarellis. John was playing a swanky New York City supper club with his trio and had just finished an up-tempo number complete with an awe-inspiring guitar solo. Just as the applause finished, a voice from the audience commented loudly, That's not so hard. John, of course, responded, What do you mean that's not so hard? The voice repeated, that's not that hard. John replied, Well, if it's not that hard, perhaps you'd like to come up on stage and do it yourself. Of course. Who came out of the audience? Bucky Pizzarelli. It was perfectly set up and perfectly entertaining, and the duet that followed was perfect music. We'll wrap up this set with one of my favorite interview moments. In January of 2001, I met with drummer Eddie Locke. Eddie was not a household name, but he had distinguished himself supporting a long list of jazz luminaries, including saxophonist Coleman Hawkins and trumpet player Roy Little Jazz Eldridge. Jazz performance goes far beyond the notes, and Eddie received a stern and succinct lesson one night from the competitive Roy Eldridge. So <laughs> Roy had quite a competitive oh, spirit, didn't he? I, I said, I've never played with anyone that loved to play as much as him. Never. And my greatest story, every time I tell somebody this, they always say, love it. But I'm going to tell it so this will be in, on film forever. I'll never forget we were playing in a place and it was no one in the place. It's just like this room we're in now. Mm -hmm. But the band, we were up there playing. And I was just back there. And he turned around and he looked, leaned over the drum set at me. And he said, what are you doing? And I said, well, Ronnie, man, I said, there's nobody in here. You know, I said, look, he said, he looked me right in. I mean, he got closer. He said, I'm here. 
it was the scariest thing. I mean, in the way he said, you know what I mean? Yeah. But it made it made a difference in me. He said, "I'm here." It was play, cause that's what he did. I mean, I've heard him play to some of the greatest music I ever heard, in a room just like this with nobody in it. Uh huh. He would just he loved that horn. It was just like, you know, that's why when he did his funeral, when Dizzy said, he said, "Y'all got to find something else to do now." He said, "Cause this this is the only person was ever named jazz." Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Said so he's the only one was ever named jazz. And that's what he was. He... And that story is a perfect example of O-R-A-L, teaching and learning. You can watch the complete video interviews with all these artists on the Phileas Jazz YouTube channel. Our next Jazz Backstories episode will offer more tales about the learning process that has led to so much iconic music. See you on the flip side.